Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you. Uh, none is sufficient to stand before you. As we were conceived, we were conceived rebels and traitors, and our natural bent and inclination was against you and after our own way. But Father, you have dawned in our hearts as you have worked in the Son, redemption for mankind. We now come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. Father, as we turn to your word, your inspired word, every word breathed out by you through the Holy Spirit to work in men that we might hear your voice even today, 2,000 years later after Christ walked on this earth. We pray, God, that our hearts would be submitted to you and our minds be focused on you. And I ask particularly that you would guard my lips, that you would be honored in the proclamation of your word, and that we as a people would be moved to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I had the great joy of attending a college where physical education was mandatory, and one of those mandatory classes was boxing. Yay. Um, during that class, the instructor taught us the value of the one-two punch. And what you would do was you would be standing there and you would jab out. And if he wasn't paying attention to that jab, he'd catch it in the lips. Okay, that was good. But if he did block it, if he was paying attention to that left hand coming out, he wouldn't see the right hand coming across the other way. The one-two punch. Very simple. If he's over-focused on one hand, he's going to catch it with the other. It is not terribly difficult to defend against it if you're aware that they are both coming your way. However, after three-minute rounds of holding up 16-ounce gloves, that's a pound in each hand, your arms start to get fatigued. And you're able maybe to parry one of them but if you're not careful, pretty soon you're looking at the constellations that they painted on the ceiling as the stars whirled about your noggin. A few months back, we started to look at the temptations of Jesus Christ. And we will look at the third temptation a little bit later in the year. But here, as we see the match between Satan and Christ going on. In the second temptation, Satan is going to try a one-two punch with Jesus Christ. Trying to thwart him from carrying out the plan and the mission that God would have him follow. But we see that Jesus firmly withstood the attack. As we look to this, just as we looked to the last temptation, we can draw hope from this. We can learn from this and hopefully take it from here as we too are going to face the attacks of Satan in our comings and goings. Let me start out by recapping uh, the first sermon from a few months ago. Christ is in the wilderness. 
Why is he in the wilderness? He is in the wilderness really to prepare for his earthly ministry. It was right after his baptism that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, led God the Son out into the wilderness for for 40 days. The first temptation came near the end of the 40 days, and it was, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, for one who hasn't eaten in 40 days, you go, "Uh, you betcha. And for Christ to have done so would not have been sin per se. But he would be using his power for himself and not ultimately for God the Father's glory and for his purposes. And so Christ appealed to the word of God. Even in his answer, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is more. There is more to life than food. There is more to life than the desires of our flesh. Well, the second round begins here. And Satan takes two swings at Christ Christ within the second temptation. His first jab comes to Christ's identity. Let's read together here in chapter 4 of Matthew, picking up in verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city, that would be Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That is from Psalm 91 that Sarah read in its entirety. Now, before we start to unpack this, let's understand that there's no doubt in Satan's mind who Jesus Christ is. He's not wondering, who are you really? As many of the Pharisees would wonder, as many of his disciples would wonder. Satan knew plainly. We can appeal to scripture when Christ went before legion in the Gadarenes. He knew him as the son of God. The demon at Capernaum responded in Luke chapter 4. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. James challenges his hearers in his epistle in James chapter 2 and verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So if there was any who knew fully and completely who God the Son was, it was Satan. And so Satan challenges Christ at his deity. You know, who, who are you? Are you really God? And despite Hollywood's take on the matter, Jesus Christ never doubts his deity. 
We never get the sense anywhere in scripture that Jesus is conflicted about who he is. Oh, yeah. There's no angst anywhere in there. Jesus' very words asserted his deity. He told his disciples the night before he was crucified in John chapter 14, verse 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Earlier on, he told the crowd, I and the Father are one. And a little bit before that, in John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if somebody said that today, we might correct their grammar. Going, oh, your tenses don't agree there. But his tenses did agree. What he was declaring was, I am. I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh God. I am the covenant name of God that the Jews would know full well. So his words asserted that he believed himself to be God. And his enemies backed it up. His enemies believed that's what he was saying. They sought to stone him after he said, I and the Father are one. They sought to stone him after he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if Jesus didn't mean it, he'd have gone, no, 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 you misunderstood me. I didn't what I said. So silly. No, he was very plain. He didn't deny it. That's what he said. That's what he meant. That's what he how he was understood. His actions, his miracles, and his teaching all backed it up as well. Miracles like no other had performed. So, this this first swing was at his deity. And, And Christ knew full well who he was. The second swing of Satan's attack is going to center on his identity within the Godhead and his relationship with the Father. Did God the Son trust the direction ordained by God the Father? If Satan could get Christ to act on his own volition, In his own will, apart from the Father, you have no Godhead. You have no triunity. You have independence on the part of the Son. And we see this nowhere within Scripture. And really, this is going to get into... let's, Let's stop and talk just a little bit about the triunity of God. Okay, A complex topic. What does scripture teach? It teaches plainly that God is one. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. As I read in James earlier, James, in one of the earliest epistles, As he was describing what he said to the demons, 
He said, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in trouble. There is one God. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay? Good so far? Well, we also hear in Scripture that the Son is God, the Father, Father's God, Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And you go, okay, you lost. And really, this becomes a stumbling block for many. It is a stumbling block for the Jews. Um, and that's okay. It's not okay that it's a stumbling block, but it's okay that it is a hard concept. John Wesley uh, famously said, Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Okay. You're not going to find a worm that understands humanity. Well, guess what? We're not going to fully comprehend the Trinity. But there are things we can know truly. We can know truly that the Father is God. We can know truly that the Son is God. We've already discussed that point. We can know truly that the Spirit is God. In Acts chapter 5, Peter tells Ananias that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say a few other things. And he says, you have lied against God. He's He's not separating the two. He is declaring plainly that the Holy Spirit also is God. We see the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we go, how does that work? And I go, I don't know. We do know that there is one God in essence. And in substance, there are three persons, all God. Understand too. There's this, there's this thing called modalism where, well, it's just, it's just different forms of God. It's just God manifesting himself in a different way. Well, if that's the case, then, then Christ is schizophrenic because he is praying to the Father. He is speaking about the Father as distinct from who he is, even though he calls himself one with the Father. He prays to the Father. Is he talking to himself? Okay. Um, so there, there is not this schizophrenia. There is not this modalism. There are three distinct persons. We see that at the baptism of Jesus Christ, where Christ is coming out of the water and the spirit descends upon him like a dove. And the father from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There was an early church father. His, his name is Gregory of Nazianzus. It's, it's, it's really a beautiful quote about the Trinity. He says, No sooner do I conceive of the One than I am, than I am illumined by the splendor of the Three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the One. When I think of any one of the Three, I think of Him as the whole. And my eyes are filled. 
and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. It's like I, when, as soon as I begin to ponder the three, I see the splendor of one. When I think of the one, I see the majesty of the three. And, it's, and that is what we see borne out in Scripture. And so Satan is going to challenge Christ, are you the Son of God? If you are the Son of God, then... And he appeals to Psalm 91. And as Sarah read it, I hope you understood and could hear what a beautiful psalm of protection it is of God for his people. And Satan quotes it directly. He says, he will give his angels command concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Throw yourself off the temple. Throw yourself off the temple mount. Think of it. I mean, here is God the Son. He hasn't even begun his ministry. What an entrance, baby. You, know, you, you, can, you can think of the public relations guy. You know, how, how, can, we, how can we really uh, pump this up in the press? Hey, let's put you on the temple and have you jump off. And the angels will bear you up because that's what Scripture says. Christ doesn't rebuke him for misquoting Scripture. Christ doesn't rebuke him for twisting and contorting Scripture. As if to say, yep, that's what it says. The Father will let, the Father will let nothing befall the Son outside his divine will and his divine plan. That is not to say that harm would not befall the Son, because we know that was true. God's purpose and plan was the cross. God himself would see to it that Jesus Christ was crucified. So there's, there's kind of a, almost a savage and dumbfounding irony that Satan would use the word of God to try and trip up the word of God. Christ is the word. Like, it's, like, like you can do that. I mean, how can, how can God, you're, you're using God to trip up God. You're using his very word to trip him up. The one who breathed it out. It can't be done. It's not going to be done. The Jewish leaders are going to try the very same thing. But if Satan is going to do this against God the Son, is he going to do any less to you? Satan 
is going to use the word to try and trip up God the Son. Is the, are the forces of darkness going to do the same to you? Absolutely. God is a God of love after all. He wouldn't condemn these people. Judge not, Christian, lest ye be judged. We hear it all the time where the world takes God's word and they either twist it or they misuse it. We would do well to be prepared to that end. So, there he is. Top of the temple, jump off. The Father will bury you up. What a way to enter. But that was not God's plan. That was not God's plan. Again, would it have been sinful for Jesus to jump? doesn't say thou shalt not jump anywhere. I mean, would the Father have borne him up? Yes. The second prong to this is, is not only, hey, think of, think of how quickly people are going to recognize who you are. But he is planting within Christ's mind a, do you trust the Father? If he is your Father, if you are the Son of God, will he not bear you up? Why don't you try it and see? Why don't you try it and see if he really loves you? Does he have a plan for you? Does he have a purpose for you? Will the father protect the son? Yes. Until. So this is, this is a distorted message. Like the white witch in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe who did know the deep magic, there was a deeper magic still. God the Father had a deeper plan than just the Son's protection. He had a deeper plan for the glorification of the Son, and the glory of Christ would come through the cross. It wouldn't come from leaping from the temple. Even as Christ walked the earth, did he manifest his glory? He didn't. It was seen by a few on the Mount of Transfiguration very briefly. It was seen, though, in his instruction. It was seen in his miracles. But none few saw his glory in, in all of its splendor. There will be a time when all will see, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. But first... The son would have to die for that to happen. So Satan's two jabs. Are you really God? Do you trust the Father? Do you know who you are? Do you trust his plan for your life? And Christ provides a devastating response to him. Very simply, Jesus said to him, again, it is written. 
The Word of God appeals to the Word of God. If we take nothing away, really, from this series, from the last sermon, this sermon, or the next one, which will be in a few months, if we take nothing away from these sermons, we've got to take this, that if God the Son parries the temptations of Satan with the Word of God, why would we use anything else? I can't stand in my own strength. I will be crushed. My spirit is not pure enough. If God the Son finds His nourishment and purpose in the Word of God, if I abide in Christ and His Word abides in me, I will ask and it will be done, is what Jesus said to His disciples. When His Word abides in me and nourishes my soul, my mind will be transformed and I will seek after and beseech of God the Father things that are pleasing to Him. When I am confronted with temptation, nothing can avail me but the sure Word of God. The only offensive weapon in the armor of God spoken of in Ephesians chapter 6 is the sword of the Spirit, which Paul goes on to tell the Ephesians is the Word of God. And even the shield of faith, if I'm to have faith, I have to have faith in something. I have to have faith in what God has said to me. And even that is in the word of God. So I defend with the word of God by believing what God has said. And I can parry with the word that God has given me. The author of Psalm 119 says, The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path to see where I am going in dark days. Now, there are people who know the word far better than I do, than you do. And the word to them is inert. It does nothing. I told the teens, uh, this morning. It's like having a can of gasoline. I have a can of gasoline. Swell. It's doing me no good. You could have gallons and gallons and gallons of gasoline. You need a car. Oh, I, I got a car, but you need a spark plug to ignite that thing. So you can have all the knowledge in the world and it avails you nothing. On the flip side, as a Christian, if I don't have the word, I'm like a, a, a NASCAR racer ready for the Daytona 500. I got the coolest car, but I've got no gas. I've got nothing upon which the engine will run. I have to have the fuel of the Word of God. Together, the Word of God with the Holy Spirit active in the life of a believer, you are a racer ready to go. They have to be working together. And Christ counters the evil one in the power and authority 
of the word here that he is. So he says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jeremy read that this morning to start our worship out. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay, But it is appealing, we're going to hopscotch. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah or Meribah. Okay, and so he's appealing in Deuteronomy chapter 6 back to what Jeremy preached on a few months ago, Exodus chapter 16. So I invite you to flip over to Exodus chapter 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When we put God to the test, what we are saying in essence is, I do not believe what you have said. When we put God to the test, we say, I do not believe that what you have done has any effect upon me today. When I put God to the test, I say that my disobedience betrays that I do not believe that your commands are good for me. I put God to the test when I say my disobedience shows that I do not believe that there will be consequences for my sin. My disobedience betrays a greater love for me or for something else other than God. I have created idols. I become an idolater. The word test in both the Old and the New Testament has the idea of a prospector with a gold nugget trying to determine if it's real. I am proving it. You know, the word assay, to assay something, or the assayer's office, to prove if the nuggets are real. In the Old Testament, the word is actually sniff. Here, smell this. You go, oh, that's terrible, smell this. You know, kids are classic for that. You go, no, thanks, that's plenty. I I, I trust you, I can see. Uh, But it's the sniff test. Uh, what parent hasn't had a kid and gone to determine if the diaper was worthy of changing? I mean, it's the sniff test. We prove it. In the New Testament, the word is piercing. We cut into it to see if it's really what it says it is. So Jesus is appealing here to Deuteronomy chapter 16 and Deuteronomy chapter 16, Israel is one month out of Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have seen the angel of death pass over them. They have seen all the plagues and have seen their protection. They have plundered Egypt and they are in the desert and Israel grumbles against Moses in verse 2. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What? That's absurd. Where have you people been? It's been a month. You're in the wilderness, yes. Do you think the God who led you out was not going to take care of you? 
Down in verse 8, Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. When they are complaining, they are complaining against God. God would provide for them. God would then provide for them manna, bread. Provide for them quail, meat. Would provide for them water from the rock. And God says that he will test them. Backing up in verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Notice God says, I'm going to test you, but you may not test me. We stand up straight and we start getting uppity. How come... come the, God is going to show man his heart. God is going to show man that his heart is desperately wicked and his heart is going to go his own way. Why? Because that is the nature of man. For man to test God presumes that man does presumes that man has a valid reason to not trust God. There is some suspected deficiency. In truth, God has given man no reason to mistrust him or distrust him. None. Israel has, like if if anybody had reason to not mistrust God, it was Israel. Everything they had seen. Even after those events, they would see the sun stand still. They would see the rebels swallowed up by the earth. How had God proven himself to them over and over? How he's proven himself over and over even in the manna, he said, then you will know in verse, the end of verse 12, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Israel grumbles again in Numbers chapter 11. In the conquest of Canaan, they don't elect to go in. They don't trust God. And so when Jesus, back in Matthew chapter 4, quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 There's a lot of baggage with that simple quotation. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16 says that. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Why? That it may go well with you. God doesn't want to just shackle these people with a burden. He's trying to bless them. Do what I've said and it will be a blessing. If you don't, you put me to the test. 
Will I not bring discipline to you? Do you think I'm just going to overlook it? And that's all Jesus says to him. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is he saying with those simple words? He's saying, I know who I am. If you are the son of God, he goes, I know who I am. I trust my father. I will not put my father to the test. I am his son. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know who I am. Satan knows full well who he's looking at. It's almost like, how, how dare you? Are you kidding? Jesus knew his identity. Jesus knew that Satan knew his identity. Jesus also knew that his pathway was fixed. And he trusted the Father's plan and purpose for his life. My, I'm not going to put the Father to the test. I'm not going to enter the world in some spectacular fashion. I'm not going to mistrust his love. I'm going to follow the road set out before me that he has ordained for me. Why? Because I know the love the Father has for me. My pathway is fixed. And finally, to say, if I trust you, I show a mistrust for my Father. Your way is a corruption. How can I mistrust the one who has never given me cause to mistrust him? How can I put him to the test in that fashion? It would, for Christ, it would be to reject the entire history of God's working in the cosmos. It would be to reject the relationship that he has known with the Father in eternity past. And so as God the Son thwarts Satan's anemic schemes, let us be ready. Let us trust our Father in heaven. And I hope you've gotten a sense today, just in looking at Israel, how we, day by day, mistrust God and put Him to the test in our lives. When I believe that I have nothing to offer the church... I put God to the test. When my eyes see that nobody is responding to the gospel and my heart argues that no one will listen to me if I do it again, I put God to the test. When my heart tells me that my church has nothing to offer me or my family, I put God to the test. When I think that loving my spouse biblically will bear no fruit, I put God to the test. When the darkness of my soul whispers in my ear, nobody will know if I watch or listen or do this thing. 
I put God to the test. When my, con- when my belly convinces me that one more donut or one more scotch won't matter, I put God to the test. When my tongue convinces me that this juicy bit of gospel, gossip just needs to be told just to one person, because this person can pray for this other person, I put God to the test. When my thirst for one more episode convinces me that my Bible is dusty inside and out and has no relevance for me in 2018, I put God to the test. Now, understand this. Not many of us will face a Gettysburg. Not many of us are going to march on Iwo Jima. It's not going to happen. Most of our battles are much more subtle. We're not going to face Satan in the wilderness. He's got bigger fish to fry. But we'll have our own demonic issues, much less our own flesh fighting against us, much less the whole culture of the world fighting against us. And and in truth, few of us are going to fight battles. Most of us, all we have to be is nudged, and we collapse. Like a termite-riddled wall. Every time we seek some other way than God's way, we put him to the test and we fail our own. Did God really say, will he really carry out his justice? Will he really discipline the one that he loves? After all, there is therefore now no condemnation. So if, as a believer, if I'm tired of getting hammered by Satan's one-two punch, let me consider Christ's response. Do I know who I am before God? Do I understand that I am His creation, created in His image for His glory? Do I understand that I have been, as a believer, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Do I know who I am? If I do, Satan knows it too. So get away. Bye-bye. Understand who you are. Understand that Satan knows who you are too. As a believer, as Christ understood and trusted the Father's plan, do you understand and trust God's plan for your life? Do I trust him with circumstances mundane, traffic jams, the bane of my existence, stoplights, red? These are, these are mundane things, but when I get angry at them, I put God to the test. Do I trust him with my plans? Do I seek his face and his wisdom? And when I execute, when I step out on those plans, and they can be in the church, but they can be in my family. They can be in my job. When I step out on those plans, do I trust him for the increase? As a farmer or a gardener plants their garden, they don't know what they're going to get. They just do their best. And so God has given us a vector, and with joy in our hearts, we do what he has called us to do. Do I trust him if I do not trust him? If I am anxious, if I am worried, 
I put God to the test. As a believer, as, as Christ was tested, so too will you be tested. And we must be ready in those dark times to pursue and cling to Christ through it all. When you are confronted, just, just two things. If there's scripture, apply it. When you are confronted by the evil one, when you are confronted by temptation, when you are confronted to run from God, stand on scripture. If you don't know the scripture, or let's say, well, okay, first of all, if you don't know the scripture and there is time, research it. Get into scripture. Ask somebody to help you make sense out of your decision that you are facing. Temptation, trial, test. If there is no time, be like Nehemiah and throw up a prayer and trust God to lead you through it. And then afterwards, get into God's word. Because it is only by God's word that we can defend ourselves against the evil one. Now for the unbeliever, for the person here who goes, I don't get this. I don't get it. I don't understand this whole battle thing, this temptation. I don't know God like this. This triune, one essence, three substance. I don't understand how I am treasonous against this God. I'm, I thought myself pretty good. If you are in a position today where you don't get this, you can. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that the Lord has made. And this, is, this can be the day of redemption, the day of adoption into his family. One who loves you with a greater love and passion than anything you have ever known desires you and waits for you. He cares about you more than anyone living or dead and he alone can give your life meaning and purpose. And if you are tired of getting hammered by Satan's one-two punch. Today is the day of salvation. Let's bow together. Father, even now, if there be any here who do not know you as God and Savior, I would ask that you would move in their hearts to bow before you, to seek you, to seek the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ alone. Father, for all of us, help us not to put you to the test, but to trust you, to follow after you in love, knowing that you have good, you have promised good. Father, help us to abide in this dark world in a manner that pleases you in all that we say and do, that we might glorify you and honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.